good morning, Parkside. It is such a joy to be with you this morning. I can't tell you how much of an encouragement you are to us uh, at the Fields Church as we prepare to plant this church in Westfield. It's just incredible to think that there are churches like yours that are supporting us. Uh, you're praying for us, even this morning, to walk through this uh, sanctuary and hear people praying for us and for Westfield. Uh, it is such an encouragement to us. So thank you so much. Um, I'm not really gonna spend much time talking about myself or the Fields Church this morning. I'll leave that till after the service. We got to talk a decent amount of that before, uh, but after the service, we'd love to get to know you. So we've got a pretty good portion of our team here this morning. Please come and chat with us. We will stay as long as you allow us um, and, and chat and talk. And especially, let me encourage you, maybe you know somebody in the Westfield area that you would love to see get connected to a gospel preaching church. Maybe after the service, you could just tell us, get, help us get connected to them, or maybe you know someone, or maybe it's you that might be really interested in helping to plant a gospel preaching church in Westfield. We'd love to make those connections. But what I want us to do this morning is to do what we gathered to do, and that is to hear from God. And so we are gonna dig into what we just read, John chapter one. The first 18 verses are known as the prologue, which is sort of a fancy way of saying introduction. This is how John introduces his book, his gospel, on the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. In some ways, it's how, G it's how John explains Christmas. Now, I love Christmas. I mean, I absolutely, I'm all in for Christmas. We've got two little boys, a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, so we are spending maybe an inordinate amount of time celebrating Christmas, eating way too much, um, enjoying the singing, the festivities, the family, and honestly, quite a few Christmas movies. We've been watching a lot of the Christmas movies, and, and I've sort of been amazed at how incredible these Christmas movies are becoming. And not from like a cinematography standpoint, they are getting better, but how fantastical, I don't know if that's a word, but how fantastic, how magical these stories are getting. I think it speaks to a longing in us for something great. I mean, I, I think as you watch all these legends and myths that we've sort of created around the Christmas season, it, it speaks to something deep in us. We long for something that is, that is greater than us that is truly good and hopeful in our world. Some of us just love Christmas movies because they have happy endings. <laughs> and we long for a world with a happy ending. You know, I think many of us, even as I was sitting there, I was sitting with my boys watching one of these movies and I remember which one it was, and I sort of got caught away for a second. And I was like, man, how incredible would it be if this was really true? And then I thought for a second, wait a second. What actually happened at Christmas is far greater than anything these movies might display. I mean, what happened at Christmas, C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. It is the grandest of miracles that we could imagine. J.I. Packer explains it this way. He says this, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. 
Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Man, we, we have in Christmas, what we as Christians celebrate is far greater than actually anything we could ever even try to imagine or dream up. God became a human. The God of the universe became a human being. This is actually unique in all the religions of the world. There is no other religion like Christianity. Remember a famous story, at least maybe most popularly told by David Platt. He tells the story of uh, David Platt, if you don't know him, he's a Christian pastor and he has much to do with missions. He's often overseas uh, sharing the gospel, encouraging churches. And he was in Southeast Asia outside of a temple one afternoon and there's three or four kind of different religious leaders that were talking. David was in their midst. And they were sort of talking about how their religions, though they had some superficial differences, they were all essentially the same. David listened for a little while and then eventually he sort of chimed into the conversation. He said, it seems like you guys are kind of saying that there's sort of a God or a higher power or whatever you want to call it on top of a mountain. And that really all of our religions are just different ways that we sort of see and find our way up to the mountain. And the religious leaders were like, you get it. (laughs) You got it. That's exactly right. And David asked them, what would you think if the God who was on top of the mountain came down to us. They're like, well, that would be fantastic. That would be incredible. And Platt told them this, this is the difference. What we find in the Bible is the story of a God who has not left us alone to try to find our way to him. He has come to us and he has made the way to himself through Jesus. All other religions are about how man might find their way up to God. But Christianity is about how God came to seek us. What we're gonna look at this morning is sort of three kind of main points. If I could summarize it, it would be like this. That God came to us to make himself known and to make us his own. We'll look at the first point in just a second, that God came to us. Then we'll look at that God came to us to make himself known, and then finally, to make us his own. I want you to just look for me. We'll be in John chapter one, as I said. Go ahead and look at verse 14 again. This is the, the sort of the crux of this entire prologue, and I think it would be helpful for us to start there. John one, verse 14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered here this morning to hear from you. We believe that your word is truth, that it is your very word to us. So Father, I pray that you would help me to proclaim that word, that you would help me to say that which is true from your word, that you would help me to teach it. Give me clarity and wisdom. But Father, I pray that you would help all of us to listen. Help us to be quick to listen this morning. Sometimes that's difficult for us. There may be, especially in this season, all sorts of things running through our minds. There may be struggles in our hearts, but I pray that you would help us to receive your word this morning and help us not to be just simply hearers, 
but we pray that your word would take root in our hearts and it would change the very way that we live. Would you, by your spirit, do that this morning to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ? And it's in his name we pray, amen. First thing that I want us to look at this morning is that God came to us. And sort of two things that I have to make from John's argument here is that first, Jesus is God, and second, that Jesus is God come to us. So first, we need to see from this passage that Jesus is God. Now, the verse we just read makes that really clear. Verse 14 says that he is the only son from the Father. John tells us in the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the only son of God. Maybe even better stated that Jesus is God the Son. But it's actually in the very first few verses that we maybe see the deity, the the fact that Jesus is God most clearly. Look at the first few verses. John says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, recognize here that when John uses the phrase word, he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the word. And so John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, which if you've read the Bible at all, you're relatively familiar with that phrase. It harkens back to the very beginning, the first three words of the entire scripture, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here, John says, in the beginning was the word. That in the very beginning, the word already existed. Jesus already existed, which can only mean that Jesus is eternal, right? What John is saying is that before anything else was created, before the very beginning, the word already was, which is a fancy way of saying that Jesus has no beginning. He was not created See, it's a way of saying that Jesus is eternal, that he is God. Now, if that wasn't clear, he goes on to say, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I don't think you get much more explicit than that. The word was God. Jesus is God. Now, we do have that phrase before that's a little bit like shakes us. Like, wait wait a second. How can Jesus be God and also be with God? Well, that's a little bit difficult, but that is why it's so important that we sing what we sang this morning, that we, along with every true Christian throughout the entire history of the church, we confess that our God is triune, that he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so John is right in saying that Jesus is God, and yet Jesus is distinct from God the Father. He is the only son, as verse 14 told us. I just need to remind you this morning that the doctrine of the Trinity is not just something that we struggle to understand. It's not this this sort of truth that we must confess. It's actually at the very heart of our faith and it ought to be at the very heart of our lives. I'll just give you a recommendation. I don't have time to kind of dig into the depths here, but I would just recommend if you've never read a book on the Trinity, if you've never, maybe if you're sitting here and you're like, I still struggle to understand why that matters or what it means, you might read Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. 
So if you got something to write down that sounds interesting to you, you might read Delighting in the Trinity. That would be an incredible way to spend the next two weeks of your Christmas break or maybe to begin the new year. Because the Trinity, the fact that God is triune, actually matters to us. It ought to influence and shape how we actually live, how we sing, how we pray, how we relate to one another, how we understand God. It's actually what makes us unique from every other sort of religion in the world that our God is one and three, Father, Son, and Spirit. But maybe you're sort of tempted to think, as some have been, that, well, Jesus is God, but maybe he's not God in the same way that the Father is God. But then look at verse three. John says this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made absolutely core at what it, of our understanding of what it means to be God is that he is creator. And John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is creator, that every single thing that has been made was created through Jesus. And in fact, he tells us in the negative that nothing was made that was not made through Jesus. Jesus is God. The entire New Testament tells us this. I think I've got these passages for you. I'm gonna flip through them quickly. Paul in Colossians 1, he says, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, we'll look at this passage. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then Jesus himself, John chapter 10, he says this, I and the Father are one. It's absolutely clear that Jesus is God. But John in this first chapter also makes it clear to us that Jesus is God come to us. That Jesus is the God who became a human being. He became a man and he dwelt among us. Look at verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's an interesting word, isn't it? The word became flesh. Now I feel like there's so many different things that John could have said there. Like he could have just said the word became human and that would express the truth It'd make it clear. Why does he use the term flesh? That's sort of a stark word, isn't it? I mean, even in English, the way that we say it, flesh has sort of a, like a, man, that, that grabs you a little bit. Why does he use the word flesh? Well, I think for two reasons. First, he uses this word to make it explicitly clear that Jesus just didn't appear human, that he didn't just look human. That's actually probably one of the most dangerous heresies in the early church was that Jesus was a spirit or an angel that sort of looked like he was God. But no, John makes it so clear. No, Jesus became flesh. He, he became fully, truly human. He identified us to our very skin. Jesus is fully human, mind, heart, body, will, human. But second, and maybe even more importantly, I think John uses this word to show us the depths to which Jesus lowered himself to. Flesh is not, in the Bible, a positive word. 
It's not a, a super encouraging way to talk about humanity. When, when the Bible uses the term flesh, it tends to talk about our weakness. I think for us, that's pretty easy to understand. When you talk about like, what's the strongest thing in your body, you're not, simply, you're not usually thinking about your flesh, your skin. I mean, it's, it's easily penetrated. You can break it. You can uh, scratch it. It's, it's weak. And see, when the Bible talks about flesh, he, it, it normally has that sort of connotation. One commentator says this. He says, flesh stands for the whole person. That's the first thing we talked about. But it refers also to human existence in its frailty and vulnerability. Jesus identified with us to that degree. Jesus identified with us to that degree. See, I think the divinity or the deity, the godness of Jesus is the problem for the theological liberal. Those who are maybe a little bit more liberal in their theology, they tend to disbelieve or doubt that, God, that Jesus is truly God. But I think the humanity of Jesus is the struggle for us. I think we struggle to really understand or grasp or maybe even believe that Jesus was truly human. I remember the first church that I was at that I served as a pastor, I sort of had this uh, shrine of like, Christian sort of kitschy stuff, just these, these weird things that our Christian culture seems to just produce um, and put out there to the world that it's just really not that great. And, and for whatever reason, it would accumulate in my office through the years. And one of them was this figurine of Jesus. It was sort of like a Woody doll from Toy Story. If you pulled the little string, he would say verses, but he would say verses in a voice like James Earl Jones. It was like, I am, I can't even get that low, y'all. I mean, like, it was just, it was so deep and so rich was this tone. And I just, I don't think I need to tell you, like, this doll, like, figurine, Jesus looked perfect. I mean, he was the, like, the best looking dude to ever walk on the planet. You could actually, like, sort of lift his shirt up and he had a 10 pack of abs. I don't even think that's possible. Like, I, I don't, like, I, I mean, legitimately, I don't know that that's human. Like, he was, he was, I mean, just rippling. I mean, he just looked like whatever we might picture Hercules or Sam, I mean, like, like a pro wrestler. I don't even know. Just an enormous figure of a man. <laughs> and I think that's what we think about. We tend to think that Jesus is like that. We, we tend to think that he's sort of a superman of sorts. But he's not. Actually, if we read the Bible well, Isaiah seems to tell us that he wasn't much to look at. And in fact, when he first began to proclaim that he was indeed the Messiah, people were shocked. Whoa, 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 this dude? The carpenter's son? That dude can't be the Messiah. He was truly human. There's a reason why nobody likes Superman movies. It's because we can't relate to him. Because he's not actually human. And yet I think for many of us, that's what we think of Jesus but Jesus became a human in every single way that we are. Let me remind you that Jesus was born. Luke chapter two tells us that Jesus was born. I've been watching some specials like that of his birth, and I don't need to tell you, but babies aren't super strong. Like, they're awesome, but they're pretty frail and weak and needy. Like, I, re I still remember Carson, who was sitting here before, I remember when he was born, and if he took a long nap, and praise the Lord that he did that um, every once in a while, or if he was at sleep at night, it was everything I could to not go multiple times into his room and, like, take this look at his chest. And is that thing still moving? Because I just wanted to make sure he was still alive. 
Because my biggest fear, especially the fr- by the time we got to Knox, I'm like, yeah, he's fine. Um, but that first kid, I'm just like, man, I, I just hope I don't end this thing. Like, I mean, I, like, it's, it's small. Like, he's a little frail. The God of the universe is a baby to that degree. I mean, Luke tells us that he grew outwardly, he grew in stature, but he also grew inwardly. Jesus had to learn how to speak. He had to learn wisdom like every other human being. Matthew 4 tells us that he got hungry, that he needed to eat. In John 4, it tells us that he was tired. Matthew 26 tells us he was angry. John 11 tells us that he was troubled. He was sorrowful. He even wept. The God of the universe wept at the death of his friend. Jesus was fully human in every single way that we are. He experienced the fullness of emotion. If you think that Jesus just walked through this world in ease, stoically, nothing bothered him like a Superman, it's just not true. Jesus lowered himself that low to us to be human in every way that we are except without sin. Hebrews 4 tells us that he was tempted in every single respect that we are so that he can sympathize with us. And then we know that he suffered, he died, and he was buried. I mean, honestly, if we look at the life of Jesus, he actually lived maybe the hardest human life we can imagine. He actually suffered to a degree that we can't actually even sort of think on. He was human, fully human in every way that we are. And in fact, Jesus rose from the dead as a human being, and he is right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven as a human being. There is a human being in the throne room of heaven right now. That ought to give us such encouragement because that human being is there. If we are in Christ, we one day also will be there with him. Jesus is fully human. He is the God who became man. There is no grander miracle than that. But why? Why did Jesus come to us? Why did God come to us? Well, first, to make himself known. God came to us first to make himself known. Look at verse 18 with me. No one has ever seen God. No one. No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. We know that no one in all the Old Testament saw God. The only God, just again, you see, Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is fully God, and he has come to us to make God known to us so that we can know the God of the universe, so that we can actually see the God of the universe in 3D. If you wanna know something, you wanna see how it reacts in the world, well, what would so-and-so do in this situation? Or how? We have that. We have seen God walk the earth. Heaven, eternity took legs <laughs> and walked among us. Now, we see that throughout this passage. Look at verse one, the fact that Jesus is called the word. Well, that's significant. D.A. Carson says this, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation. 
It's, it's how God expresses himself in creation, revelation, and salvation. God expresses himself through his word. He speaks and it's created. He speaks and reveals himself. He speaks and we are saved. It's one of the reasons why I want to proclaim his word this morning is because God saves by his word. But what we also see in the Old Testament is that the personification of the word, often the word is personified. It takes on some human sort of uh, attributes. Well, that makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure the person of his own son. Jesus is the word. Now, there were prophets in the Old Testament who spoke the word of God, but they spoke coming from God. Jesus, when he taught, everyone was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy's speaking on his own authority. He didn't speak as one who came from God. He spoke as one who was God. But we didn't just hear his words. We saw him, John says. We saw him in the flesh, the word made 3D. He is the perfect revelation of God. This is why I think John uses a theme throughout the gospel, even here in verses four, seven, and nine, you'll notice that the word light is used, that Jesus is the light. He is actually the true light is coming into the world. Well, we know what light does, right? Light reveals it illuminates, that which is unseen becomes seen in the light. Jesus is the light. And then finally, in what we've just seen in verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shows us God's very glory. We see the very glory of God in Christ. In 1961, the Russians, maybe unfortunate to us in America, were actually the first ones to send a man into space. That cosmonaut's name was Yuri Gagarin. And he's sort of famous for going up into space and saying, I went up there and I didn't see God. Nikita Khrushchev was one of the leaders of Russia and there was an anti-Christian, sort of, uh, an anti-religion, anti-faith sort of movement in Russia at the time. And Nikita Khrushchev is famous for saying that Gagarin flew into space, but he didn't see any God there. Eventually, that message traveled to C.S. Lewis, who in his pretty common brilliance and wit said this. He said, that's nonsense, that's absolute nonsense. That's like Hamlet thinking that he could go up into the attic of his house and find Shakespeare there. It's just silly. God is wholly other than us. This idea that you might travel into the space and find God there, that doesn't even begin to understand who God is. No, Lewis says, in order for Hamlet to know Shakespeare, Shakespeare would have to write himself into the story. Christmas is God writing himself into the story. We'd have no hope to know God unless he wrote himself into our story. Jesus is God written into our story, but not a Hamlet type of story, the true story. It's reality. The God of the universe brought himself, came into our very life to make himself known to us. Now, what did he make known? Look again at um, verse 14. He says this, we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only son from the father. This last phrase, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to make God known, specifically to show us his glory. What is God's glory? Grace and truth. In fact, if we read the Bible well, we will see that the very glory of God is that God is good. It's the goodness of God. Look back, I think I should have it on the screen for you in Exodus 33, verses 18 through 19. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness. Do you see that? Moses says, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. What's, what's the implication there? That what is God's glory? It's that he's good. What is the very glory of God is that he is good. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, and pro, I will proclaim my, before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then just in the next chapter, when God shows up to Moses in verses five through seven of Exodus 34, it says this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, what is the name of the Lord? Who is God in his very essence as he describes and reveals himself to Moses? He is the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That last phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is what John means by grace and truth. Almost exactly the same from the language. So when, when Jesus comes to the earth, he reveals the very glory of God. And what does he tell us that God is? that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's exactly what we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, isn't it? The very goodness of God on display. Now, I think that means two things for us. First, it means that there is no distinction between the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus. This seems to be so popular, even among us Christians, we don't wanna admit it, but sometimes we seem to think, well, God was sort of angry, wrathful in the Old Testament, and then super nice in Jesus. But if we read our Bible as well, and if we understand this passage, that what we see in Jesus is who God is. God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of grace and truth. That's what this means. It means that when Jesus spends hours upon hours caring for the sick, the outcast, the suffering, to the point of exhaustion, we're seeing the very heart of God the Father. When he welcomes little children with laughter and joy, when he comes to the defense of a woman caught in adultery, when he seeks Zacchaeus up in the tree, when he dines with the worst of sinners, the lowest of exiles, when he picks up Peter out of the utter shame of his betrayal, and when he, in his final breaths, expresses compassion to those who are crucifying him. In all these things, we see God. And that's the second thing. This is our God. The God who lowered himself to us, who became flesh 
and dwelt among us, who lived with all of the struggles in the sinful-filled world that we live except without sin, who suffered even to the point of death for us. Why? Because he's oh so good. Because he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I, I know you know that. I know I know that. But I don't think we believe it. I love what Dane Ortland says. He says this, perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Here's what Ortland is arguing, that actually our greatest problem is that we actually don't believe that God is good. That the reason we flee to sin, that we run after sin, is because we think God is stingy. We think God is holding back on us. Like Eve in the garden, we think that there's something great for us out there, but God doesn't want us to have it. We don't believe that God truly wants our good, and so we go to what we think is good. <laughs> we go to find the goodness, the pleasures of the world, and we run from God. Or in our sinfulness, in our suffering, in our struggles, we tend to think, we have this image of our head that God is stern, furrowed-browed, angry, that he's demanding, that he's harsh, to use a character in the Christmas sort of season, he's Scrooge-like. And so in our sin and suffering, because we don't really believe that he's good, we run from him. See, our biggest problem is that we actually don't believe Christmas. <laughs> because what Christmas shows us is that God has made himself known to us, and what ha how has God made himself known? by showing us to the greatest degree that he is good and that he wants our good. So no matter who you may be in here this morning, maybe you've been running after sin or maybe in your sin you're trying to hide it and flee from God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, you're trying to sneak around a tree Hear the call of Jesus, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is one thing that you cannot do in this life, and that is overestimate the goodness of God. Christmas makes that absolutely clear to us. Maybe we see that maybe most clearly in the last point, that not only has God come to us to make himself known, but to make us his own. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary was made human. Why did God come to us? for us and our salvation, the creed says. Well, that's exactly what John says too. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter one. He says this, but to all who did receive him. What does it mean to receive him? 
Well, he tells us, who believed in his name, who put their trust not in themselves, not in the things of the world, but believed that only God, only Jesus could save. Well, those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, don't don't miss that word all. All who received him. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter what you will do. All who received him, who believed in his name. It doesn't matter how great you think you are or how terrible you think you are. All who received him, who believed in his name. He gave the right, the privilege to be children of God. C.S. Lewis, again, I quote him a few times. If you've heard me preach it, it's not surprising. But he makes this great statement. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The son of God became a human being so that we, those of us who place our faith and trust in Christ, might be children of the living God. Now note this, on verse 13, how that happens, right? The very end of that verse, it says very clearly, not of blood, it's not your family that makes you a children of God. Doesn't matter who gave you birth, it doesn't matter your line, it's not, you don't have some sort of royal line that enables you to be children of God. No, it's not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, you're not born as children of God. It's not a, it's not a natural sort of thing, <laughs> right? This is Nicodemus's issue with Jesus. He keeps on telling, Jesus is like, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. Like, how can I be born again? I can't like enter back into my mom. And he's like, no, you don't get it. It's not a natural birth that we're talking about. But notice he says this, nor of the will of man. It's not based on your decision, your uh, will. What does he say? but of God, God alone, by his will, by his good pleasure, gives us the right. He he makes us new, and we respond in faith and repentance, and we are children of God. Paul says it, we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith, That's our response. We are saved by grace through faith and not by our own hands, not by our own works. We can't save ourselves. This is the gift of God. What an unbelievable gift. Now, I think this is humbling and freeing. I think it's humbling because this means that we can't save ourselves. My guess is in a room this size, there are some of us that have never really turned to Jesus because we keep thinking that we can save ourselves. We think we can go to church and we can read our Bibles and we can sing the songs and eventually we'll be good enough for God to receive us. We'll earn heaven in some way. And so it's really humbling to understand that we cannot save ourselves. But it's also so freeing because we don't need to. When Christ on the cross says it is finished, he meant it. He did what we could not do for ourselves. That is the most freeing thing, that our identity as Christians, that we are children of the living God, not because of our successes, 
not because of how good we are, how much we obey, or how little we sin, or how, none of those things. We are children of God because of what Christ has done for us. And what Christ has done for us cannot be taken away. What Christ has done for us cannot in any way can we outsend our way out of what Christ has paid for us. Now, how did this work or how does this happen? Well, in the mid-1800s, around the 1850s in Hawaii, there was a pretty large spread of what's called Hansen's disease. It's a fancy term for leprosy. And what the people in Hawaii did at that time is they, they sort of uh, quarantined, they pushed everyone who had leprosy into a colony out in the middle of nowhere in Hawaii and sort of left them to fend for themselves and ultimately die. It was known as a colony of death. And you can only imagine, we're not familiar with leprosy, but you can imagine what a skin disease that essentially rots, what, what that sort of colony was like what that people, what that community was like. It really was a, a colony, a, a, a people of death. And there was a missionary in Belgium, his name was Father Damien, and he chose to go, led by the Lord, to be a missionary to this people. He said this, what an incredible statement. He says, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. And when Father Damien got there, he began, he didn't just stay back, keep his distance, like most of us are very familiar with doing now. Um, he didn't, no, he went right into the midst. Washed sores, he cleaned up people, he built clinics, he served food, he loved these people. He preached the gospel. And what was once a community of death began to have life and joy, and hope. And Father Damien would always begin his sermons by saying, my dear brethren, my dear brothers, he was with them to that degree. Until one day he gave a sermon and he began it by saying, we lepers. Father Damien would end up getting leprosy himself and would die of it a few years later. Friends, this is an unbelievable picture of Christmas. God came to us. Jesus came into our colony of death and darkness. And he associated with us to the degree that he even took on the leprosy of our sin. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, completely innocent, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. And what he means by that is that Jesus took on all of our sin, the full leprosy of our sin upon himself. And Paul says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took the full penalty, the full wrath. This is why God had to come to us because we could not pay the infinite debt we owed to sinning and rebelling against an infinite God. Only God could pay it, but we had to pay it. And so Jesus had to become one of us. And on the cross, he took all of our sin, all the wrath 
all the penalty for our sin upon himself. And he died for it. And he rose to new life. He paid the penalty in full for us so that we might have life and hope in Christ. So what's our response? What's our response this morning? What is to receive that Christ, the God who came to us to make us his known? I think there's two things that generally hold us back from that. One is that we don't believe that God has the power to actually save us. There's some of you in this, here this morning that maybe have never actually trusted in Jesus and the reason is is you think you're too terrible of a sinner. You don't really believe that God has the power to save you or maybe you are a Christian and you really don't believe that God has the power to save you from this sin or that God has the power to grow you and transform you in this Christian life, that, that he could make you more holy. One of the reasons we don't come to him, that we don't trust him at Christmas or in this message is because we think he doesn't have the power to save us or we think he's not willing to save us. We don't think he's good enough to save us, but Christmas shows us that not only is God powerful, so powerful that the God of the universe became a baby boy. And that baby boy, needing to be fed by his mom at the same time was upholding the universe. He has such power. And yet also, he is so willing, so good to save that he came to us to that degree, that he died on the cross for us. Let me implore you this morning. There might be all sorts of reasons why you might not turn to Christ this Christmas, but not let it be that you don't think he's powerful enough or that you don't think he's good enough. And my hope for us in this Christmas is that Christmas, this time of year, it would be a huge, blaring reminder of how glorious and good our God is. Enjoy the festivities, feast, <laughs> watch the movies, sing the carols, but take time to remind yourself that you do all of that because of the God who came to us to make himself known and to make us his own. Let's pray. Father, we were amazed. I mean, we really are. It, almost unbelievable to, to us that you are this good, this great. So easy for us in this season of the year to get wrapped up in so many other things, but help us not to forget, to take time, like Mary, to treasure these things in our heart, to remember that there is actually something so much greater than any of these stories that surround Christmas that you have come to us. Father, this Christmas, may we make much of Jesus. May we know that because Jesus has come, that you are good and that we can be your children. And I pray that you would sink that reality deep into our hearts and lives. I pray that we would leave here this morning and we would go into this week rejoicing that you are the God who is great and that you are the God who is good. 
and that we would make much of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who rescued us, who alone could rescue us, and he did from our sin. May we find our identity, our hope, our joy, our very lives in him. May we treasure him above all. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.